Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Uh, we will be in Ecclesiastes this week and um, next week. Uh, Stephen will be arriving late uh, Saturday, so give him a break enough to preach on no sleep. <laughs> so we're in Ecclesiastes 7, and we'll begin. The, the, this message will be about wisdom's limits. About 10 years ago, I learned a lesson that I thought I already knew. I don't know if you've been that, had that experience before. You think you know something, but you don't really know it. And, and it's only when adversity strikes that when a, a rule of thumb, th- something that you think is a good idea, becomes wisdom for life. And the wisdom that I learned was leave no man behind. Leave no man behind. <laughs> Let me tell you this story. Maybe some of you have heard this story before. I think you have. Um, I planned and led a men's a church hike on Mount Rainier. And we were going to hike from Paradise, which is about 5,400 feet, to Camp Mir, which is about 10,200 feet. And there were approximately 10 guys that came but there was, who had signed up. And there was one surprise addition, though. And he was a young man. He was new to the church. I had never met him before. Um, but many of you know, know him. He's not here today, but his name is Cody Jenkins. Now, um, the hike to Camp Mir, um, it's not easy. It's steep. You're on slippery ground. Uh, there, you're at high elevations, and the trail is oftentimes on snow. And so by the time you've maybe left 500 yards from the trailhead, your, your legs are burning, your, your heart's pumping, you're, you're breathing hard. And as we were getting going, the, the oldest member of our group was walking alongside me, and he saw a raven fly over our heads. And it went, caw, caw. And he said, that's a bad sign. <laughs> and I, I just, I sort of shook my head with the superstition, but he confidently declared, whenever I've had a raven fly over me on a trip, there's been bad things that happened. <laughs> so we, we just kept walking. I didn't know what to take of that, but that's what he said. Now, before we reached the snow, uh, we were all pretty tired, but Cody was particularly tired, and he decided that, it, that he'd had enough, and he would stop there. I didn't like this plan, but, uh, and my dad he was, sort of taught me how to hike. He said, you know, you never do that, but we, were all, we weren't very far along and kind of wanted to keep going. Everybody else wanted to keep going, and so with apprehension, I agreed, okay, we'll meet you back here on the way back down, and he agreed. So we hiked to the top. We took some pictures after a long uh, time moving up, and then we headed back down. As we came back down, you know, we were looking for Cody along the way, trying to find him, but just he was nowhere to be found. We, we kept thinking he must have just decided to head back down and go to the lodge. Um, that was not the case. Uh, Cody had decided to um, go higher, to climb up instead of going down. Cody, I've learned, and maybe if you know him, he's pretty t- determined when he sets his mind to something. And this is really where the story gets scary. Um, inquiring about his whereabouts, we heard that someone had been harmed or hurt on the mountain, had been injured. And it was a young person, so it was, it was likely Cody. And so here I am with a group of men down in the parking lot, and the youngest member of our group, a teenager, is now um, up on the mountain, probably hurt. So my stress level, you can imagine, is, is just rising. And soon we hear a medical heli- helicopter uh, approaching the mountain. <laughs> my anxiety now was like my heart. You could just feel that tension in your chest. My, my temples, I could feel the pulse, you know, um, going. And I'm just praying, God, help. God, help. I didn't know what else to do. And, and, and the oldest member of our group, um, again, he, he saw me starting to really freak out, and he started to calm me down. But in reflecting upon 
the circumstances, he said, remember the raven? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. This was, this was, it was a nightmare. And I just, you know, Cody's in grave, grave danger. I had never met his family before, never met his mom or his sister, and now he's being flown off the mountain. And so uh, what do I do? <laughs> I was just praying. And I tell you what, though, I have never forgotten the raven. <laughs> Not in a superstitious way, but the wisdom I gained from that trip will never leave me. And the, room, the raven reminds me every time I see one, one hiking, leave no man behind. Never, <laughs> never leave someone alone. I knew that before, but now it had sunk in. So what happened to Cody? Well, we'll talk about that at the end. But for now, let's consider the acquisition of wisdom found in Ecclesiastes 7. Ecclesiastes 7 tells us that wisdom is really important. It, it, it's actually a protector for us. But like all of Ecclesiastes, the preacher knows that life is, is complicated. It's complex. And uh, it, life is not that simple. Wisdom can protect us, but it ultimately can't save us. Sometimes even the wisest choices we make, they leave us in harm's way. So what is the big idea um, this morning? You'll see it up on the screen. This is it. Ecclesiastes 7. Wisdom protects, so acquire it. This will be chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Wisdom protects, so acquire it. But wisdom is limited. God alone saves. And this will be the second half, chapter 7, verse 13, through chapter 8, verse 1. So we begin with wisdom protects, so acquire it. Wisdom is learning to live in God's world, God's way. To recognize that God had created the world and he rules in this world, and then to make choices and decisions that align with his will and his way. This is wisdom, living in God's world, God's way. So, how do we acquire wisdom? Well, let me read verses 1 through 6. Here the preacher highlights that adversity is often the way that we acquire wisdom. Adversity is often wisdom's teacher. I'll read those verses. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than go to the house of feasting, for this, is, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools, the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. You know, God, he cares about our character. So if you're going to live in God's world, God's way, with wisdom, you too will care about what, you, what, what matters on the inside. Your character, your name, as verse 1 says, is much more important than, than how you smell. <laughs> That's what it says here, perfume or ointment. In this verse 1, it poetically says that. Your character matters more than how you smell on the outside. For that reason, the wisdom of God says that the day of death is better than the day of birth. I don't think, probably many of us often think that. We, our experience is we mourn when someone dies, and we rejoice, we celebrate when a birth comes. So why do verses 1 through 6, they celebrate, or they, 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 they lift up, they esteem death, adversity, suffering, and rebuke. 
Well, it's because that prosperity and laughter and birth and the simple songs, they don't often build us up. It is adversity that teaches us wisdom and it really molds our character. Death, rather than birth, makes us thinking about those questions that form our character. So, you know, what does my life mean? Will I be remembered when I die? How will I be remembered? It's sadness rather than um, it's sadness rather than laughter that allows our hearts to grow in empathy and understanding for others. It's not the, the fluffy song, but it's a, a rebuke from somebody that challenges us in our failings and changes us. So, for example, um, some of us use joking and laughter to kind of defer or you know, escape from our problems. I know when I feel uncomfortable, I, have, I, I, I do this like nervous laughter to kind of escape. Others, they get giddy and they just laugh uncontrollably in a way that is just revort, avoiding real issues. The preacher says that laughter is like burning thorns. It sparks brightly, it's, it's, it, it pops loudly, but then it just quickly goes away. It's vanity. It is better to be sad of heart because that makes us think about important matters. So the point is that wisdom's teacher is more often adversity than a prosperity. My character and your character is, is, is shaped by, by pain. I heard a veteran, a veteran pastor that I respect a whole lot. He declared that he would rather perform a funeral than a wedding. Why do you think he would say that? Well, his answer was because at weddings, people are concerned about the, the most trivial things, the, the colors and the timing and um, the right music and the clothing. But at the funeral, trivial matters aren't as important. It's, it's the relationships that matter. It's, it's the eternal in God that is considered. Not that he didn't like weddings, but he would rather do a funeral. Think about this. Wisdom is important. But wisdom normally comes through adversity. So whatever you are suffering or your pain you're facing today, embrace what God wants to teach you, the wisdom he wants to gain. It is better to go to the house of mourning than feasting. That's what helps, God helps form our our character. I think a number of you know um, George Noland. He was a dear saint in our church um, I, I, I love George. Um, he, he, he loved the Lord. He set a good example to us. He just had this inner joy in him. So in November of 2018, he passed and left this life into eternity to be with Jesus. And for his wake, his wake, the, the viewing of his body, Heather and I um, could have gone alone. But because of verses 1 and 2 of Ecclesiastes here, or verse 2 in particular, we made it a point to take our children um, our family, probably like yours, is more often goes to the house of feasting. We eat a lot of food, especially me <laughs> and Seth. But, 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 but not so often, <laughs> we go to the house of feasting, but not so often the house of mourning. We wanted his death to remind us and our kids of the end of all mankind, to point us really to what, what matters. Um, every time I've been a part of the day of death, It sobered my mind to relationships with people, um, to the eternal, with God, and it's been helpful. I want to encourage you to put yourselves in places of the day of death. Most people spend their time like avoiding death altogether, but as Christians, it's helpful for us to grow. The Bible tells us the house of mourning is better. 
Now, it's a good point to make, but I think many of us would probably complain. That sounds good, but adversity is, is difficult, and sometimes it's not, it doesn't help that a whole lot. And that, that's true. And that is why Ecclesiastes is, is so refreshing. The preacher is not naive about life, but he, he's nuanced. And he, he understands that there are exceptions to life, and, there's, and this real world is broken. And that's what he addresses in verses 7 through 10. Adversity can be a good teacher, but it can also be an assassin. It can take us out. So look at verses 7 through 10. I'll read it. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Adversity, it's hard. I mean, that's, that's the very definition of the word. And sometimes, instead of growing in wisdom, we, we go mad. We get angry. We become impatient. We try to escape from what we see as evil or suffering. Some lost a loved one or become sick or experience betrayal, maybe someone they really care about or become poor or have been oppressed. This adversity does not lead to wisdom but despair and anger and unbelief. Adversity that is not battled with persistent faith in God, it can be an assassin. It can wipe us out. The preacher here gives us four examples of the need to press through adversity. Four examples. The first one, it's the the end of a thing is better than the beginning. That's the the first part of verse 8. Wisdom's treasure, it's only gained after you can kind of look back on what has happened and reflect upon it. So if you don't make it through, it doesn't bring wisdom. Second, it says, and this is the end of verse 8, the patient in spirit, not the proud, gains wisdom. He humbly learns with time to trust God for his course in life. And third, um, it is the one who controls his emotions and holds his anger that gains wisdom. Look at verse 9. The fool lashes out with anger and becomes bitter. And then fourth and finally, the one who idealizes the past and complains about what's currently in the present, verse 10, that person doesn't grow wise. Can you reflect back if you know your Old Testament where the Israelites, they're wandering in the desert, and what did they long for? They long, onions and leeks back in Egypt. That must have been good, those onions and leeks. That's what they thought was better. <laughs> I don't know. And remember Ezra in that time? The older men, what were they thinking? Oh, the older temple. It was so much better than the one it is today. During adversity, the temptation, the temptation to give up is strong. And the enemy wants to creep in and give us temptations to ease our pain, to numb it, to not go through the trial. That's, he, he doesn't want God's people to grow in wisdom. You, you can think about Jesus. What happened with Jesus when he was in the wilderness? The, the diabolical plan of the enemy was to give Jesus a way of escape from the adversity and the suffering that he was experiencing. And what did Jesus do? He didn't flee. He, he endured it. And he actually endured it to the end of his life. His entire life here was a life of difficulty and suffering and adversity. And why? He did it for the glory of God. It was the glory of God. 
I think we can all relate to the temptation of wanting to escape. We want to avoid pain. And so sometimes we'll self-medicate. You know what that means? Like we'll turn on the TV or scroll through our phones. We, um, some get into pornography. Sometimes we actually take medication. We drink or use drugs. These are ways of escape. And when we do that, we, 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 we thwart the wisdom that God wants to teach. I know, I know some of us have had made the hard decision of, of breaking off an abusive relationship. And when, you're, when that's happened and you're in the process, you feel like it was better back where it was. And you, you want to go back, you want to numb the pain. Sometimes it's even through sin. Don't give up. Don't waste the suffering because God wants to teach wisdom. Be patient by faith in God. Be hopeful for what will come. The other thing is, right now, depression is widespread. I know some of our the, the youth in particular are dealing with depression because they're, they're away from their friends. And, and suicide has increased during this time. This is, again, a diabolical deception of the devil to cut short the good that is to come. There's suffering, and you need to battle the temptations. And, and you can use God's word here to see there's, the end is better. The end is better than the beginning. Escapism is not the answer to adversity. We find promises in God's word here. And I'll, I'll just say this. We, as a church, we love you. We love anybody experiencing difficulty with your trial. And we, we want to pray with you to God for your help. Let us pray with you. There are others in this body that have walked difficult times. Sometimes, maybe if you're a mom, sometimes it's just nice to be another, another mom that says, I cannot take another temper tantrum. It's, it's going to put me over the edge. It's just good to, to relate to one another in those ways. Don't give up. Don't try to escape. God promises the end is better than the beginning. There's, there's better days. We will gain wisdom through walking through these things. Now, remember, wisdom is living in God's world, God's ways. His wisdom is often, it's counterintuitive to the way that we think because he cares about what matters. He cares about our character. And we often really think about our circumstances that we're in. Be assured that wisdom is good. And, and God is good, and he will teach us from it. And that's what the preacher reassures us of in verses 11 through 12. Look at verses 11 and 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Anyone who lives in God's world, God's way, has a, a built-in a bodyguard against the destroyer. In the same way that an inheritance is left for children that protects it, puts a shield around the children, the wisdom of God preserves, preserves the life of man. The preacher has observed this in life, and he sees clearly that wisdom is, is just good. Therefore, he's encouraging us to get wisdom, to acquire wisdom. It's good for you, and it's good for those in your life. It's now been about 10 years um, since Cody, I left Cody alone on the mountain. And the wisdom I've gained from that scary time, it is protected, um, it's been a protector ever since. It's protected me and others who dare to enter on my adventures. (laughs) 
I'm grateful for that wisdom that's been gained. I didn't like how the, the wisdom was gained. I wish it could have been a different way. But such is the path to wisdom often is. So the preacher's first point is that wisdom protects, so we should acquire it. And the way to acquire wisdom is most often by enduring the road of adversity. Therefore, we need to persevere to gain the treasure of wisdom. But, but his second point is that wisdom it isn't enough. Wisdom is limited, and God alone saves. So let's look at chapter 7, verses 13 through chapter 8, verse 1. And I'll begin by reading just verses 13 and 14. This is the complexity of the crooked path of life. Life isn't just that simple. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. We know this. Life doesn't follow just like clear rules of logic. If I do A, then B will happen. If I act wisely, then I'm going to be safe. It's just not true. The fact is, is that you can't gain enough wisdom. You can't gain enough knowledge to ensure safe passage through this life. Things happen. This idea is flawed. It's, overly, it's an overly simplistic view of this fallen world. And I really don't think I have to convince you of this point because we know it. The path of life is not like running a straight line. It's crooked. It's, it's like a crooked road. It's not straight. And this doesn't mean that life is out of control. It doesn't mean that life is out of But it does mean it's out of our control. The preacher has let us, let us know that wisdom protects, but God will do as he will do. And no one can straighten the path that he has made crooked. God is sovereign. It means he's in control. He's in control of our prosperity and adversity. He makes these things take place. He, he ordains them both. This also means that man is subject to God's will. He is dependent upon God. He does not and cannot prescribe his life. He can try to you know, gain wealth or prosperity or influence to control his circumstances to help. Or uh, she, might try to, she might lock her doors and get a dog and turn on the security system to stay safe. But no action of men or women can halt the will of God. In fact, we can't even know, as verse 14 says, what he will do. We, we can't even know what's going to happen. Think about where you are today. Think about your state of life. Think about the job that you have. Think about the place you live in. Could you have predicted where you would be right now? I, I know I, I, I couldn't. I would not have told you 10 years ago I would be standing right here 20 years ago. I hope... Knowledge of God's sovereignty over prosperity and specifically adversity doesn't make you angry with God, but it's reassuring to you. To know that God is in control over our good times and our bad times. The preacher's counsel here is be joyful. Be thankful for the prosperity that God brings into your life. And then to, be, to consider, to be contemplative about life and God when adversity is brought your way. So let me ask you some questions. Are you giving thanks to God 
for the prosperity in life? Are you rejoicing in what he has done? Are you giving him glory for your successes? But even more, are you seeing adversity as coming from God? And are you using, letting that adversity uh, cause you to consider him in response? Are you searching him out? Are you reading his word? Are you praying to know him more, to understand this life? Are you giving him glory for reigning over your adversity as well as your prosperity? Life does not run in a straight line. It is a crooked path made by God so we might humbly depend on him. We can't depend on ourselves. And then we can rejoice in him and search him out. And that is what the preacher does in verses 15 through 18. The preacher considers that in light of God in this crooked road, he specifically considers the, 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 the question about injustice, the confusing concern about injustice. Look at verses 15 through 18. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out of both of them. Injustice, the, the adversity of injustice, is one of, one of the most puzzling questions for men and women. Why isn't life fair? Why don't the good guys always win? Why did the bad guys why don't the bad guys get, get what's coming to them? This last week on February 10th, um, the man Larry Flint, he died. If you don't know, Larry Flint was, is the, was the founder of Hustler. At the time of his death, he was worth about a half a billion dollars. He ran a pornographic empire in Beverly Hills. He had access to everything he wanted. Women and money and fame and cars and parties, whatever he wanted. But Flint's life wasn't without suffering. In 1978, a man tried to, to, to assassinate him, to kill him, and over an interracial uh, photo shoot. He was a white supremacist that tried to do as such. And the bullet left Flint paralyzed from the waist down. I'm guessing at that time, a number of people thought, see, he got what was coming to him. Justice has been done. But it wasn't really true. Um, he was as prosperous as ever before, afterwards. He still ran his empire. And to even show that, he, he had his, his wheelchair gold-plated. He ran around in a gold-plated wheelchair. Flint's life is one of wealth and fame through raunchy, sexual, ex- sexually explicit materials. And Flint's life illustrates the preacher's observation here. It seems that oftentimes the fool prospers and the righteous perishes. Flint didn't live in God's world God's way. He lived in God's world his way. On the contrary, there are many just righteous, godly people who have lived in a good way, and we don't even know their names. Why is this like this? So, what what wisdom does the preacher offer to us? Well, sometimes the fool is protected and the righteous perishes. Why? Well, first, he'll give us two reasons. Don't overestimate your own righteousness. Don't overestimate your own righteousness. 
He says, do not make yourself overly wise. Be not overly righteous, verse 16. This is the preacher describing self-righteousness. It is thinking we are better than we are. Self-righteousness makes us mad when others don't get what they have coming. And it makes us judgmental of God when we suffer in our apparent righteousness. To be overly the righteous is to look down on others and to minimize our sin. It's somewhat easy to do that when we compare ourselves to a man like Flint. But conversely, the preacher also advises, advises, don't give up the fight for righteousness. He says, don't be a fool. Be not overly wicked in verse 17. Now, that phrase, it almost seems like it shouldn't fit in the Bible, don't be overly wicked. Is the preacher saying be wicked but not like too wicked? (laughs) That's what it kind of says. No, he's not saying that. He's saying that everyone is wicked. We're going to see that a little bit later. So just don't fold up your hands and give up. You must fight against being a fool, one who rejects living in God's world, God's way. Just because we are all wicked doesn't mean we should just go for it like Flint did. Just go to the wind. Be as wicked as possible. And then verse 18, it sums it up this way. It is good that you should not take, you should, it is good that you should take hold of this. This is the verse 16, the, the avoiding self-righteousness. And from that, withhold not your hand. This is the verse 17, giving yourself over to wickedness. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. This is really the main point of really the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Get this and you're on, you, you understand this book, you're getting on the right track. Obey God, it's living according to his way and his wisdom, and fear him. Be in awe and reverence of such a God who is sovereignly rules over all things. Fear the one who is so great that no man can find out. No one can search the depths of the wisdom of such a majestic God. In a world that is too complex for us to understand or find out, the preacher, he, he just simplifies the duty of man for us. We, we could compare this with the last verse of this entire book, compare verse 18 with the last book of, verse of this entire book. It says, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the conclusion of it all. Now, we have a problem, though, don't we, though? We have a problem. Keeping his commandments is easier said than done. And so what are we to do? Well, let's look at chapter 7, verse 19, through chapter 8, verse 1. The preacher has something to say about these things. This is the longest section I'll read. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in the city. Surely, there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this, I've, all, this I have, all this I have tested by wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness, and I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, 
This is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. The closing verses of our text this morning make it clear that our problem isn't just that we can't gain enough wisdom. Our problem is is who we, we are. In verse 20, it says that all people are identified as sinners, even the most righteous. And then in verse 21 and 22, it exposes that um, we worry about being cursed, of fearing man, worrying about people's words, but we ourselves, we curse others. And then verse 26 shows that left to ourselves, we are snared by temptations. This is verse 26. The preacher searches to find wisdom and understand folly and madness, but it is far from, it's out of reach. He, he, he looks of a thousand people and he only finds one man and not a woman. The preacher concludes his thoughts in verse 29. He says, man's problem is himself. God made man upright. He made him good, but he has corrupted himself in this world with many schemes. He is a sinner. And verse 26 tells us that the sinner cannot escape, for they, sinners don't please God. This is really the message, the problem that we find in the entire Bible. Not just here in the wisdom of this preacher. We people are snared by our sin. We are our own problem. Now, it's one thing for your problem to be someone else, but it's quite another when your problem is yourself. You, you need help from another. You need help from outside. So we're left with the question in chapter 8, verse 1, who is like the wise? Who is upright who can help? Who pleases God? And the preacher at his time, he really had no answer to this question. But thankfully, God was always at work. He was working sovereignly in this crooked world to save. And we know at the appointed time, God sent forth his son, Jesus Christ. The son whom the father twice declared from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is Jesus who are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The son of man who, though tempted in every point as we are, yet without sin. There is help for sinners, and it isn't wisdom, but it is wisdom incarnate. Wisdom come down from heaven. This is where help is found. Let me conclude what we started. When I left Cody on Mount Rainier, I was the problem. I didn't really want to stop. I wanted to make my way with the group. I wanted to make it to the top. Now, I could make some pretty good excuses, like the other guys needed me, or Cody should have known better. But deep down, I was really thinking about myself and what I wanted. Sin was my problem. I will never forget the wisdom that I gained on that trip, but, and that wisdom protects me today, but wisdom is limited. I need God to save me from my sin and myself. So, what happened to Cody? Well, later on, we pieced together that Cody had fallen 
during his ascent and he'd hit his head. And in addition to being disoriented, um, he got altitude sickness as he went higher. And in fact, Cody not only made it up to Camp Mir, but he started to climb up the rest of the mountain. And if you don't know, this is super dangerous. Right after Camp Mir are many crevasses that you could fall in and, 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 and you could die. Thankfully, some climbers uh, saw him and stopped him and flagged down the park rangers. The rangers made an assessment of his condition, and they decided he needed to be airlifted to Harborview Medical Center. Um, this, is where, this is why we heard the chopper. Cody is safe today. You've seen him, obviously. <laughs> I don't know if his mom ever forgave me. God was kind to me and us that day. The tragedy... The tragedy of that it could have been terrible. So I, I rejoice in God protecting Cody and us. And the adversity, though, it, 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 it's helped me to compl- contemplate like the real things that matter in life. Not making it to Camp Mir, but whether Cody is safe and cared for. But even more, I know that we need, I need God to save me from my sins. Praise be to God for Jesus Christ who helps in our need, who saves from sin and daily intercedes now on our behalf the sins that we commit um, each day. He intercedes for us. He covers those on our behalf, on the behalf of his people. He knows our weaknesses and our sins and his heart is drawn to sinners. He touches the leper. He goes after the one who is of the, the 99, he, he goes after the one who is lost. This is our Jesus. This is the one who saves from sin, who covers the problem that we have. Wisdom is good, but we need wisdom incarnate. We need Jesus. If, if you haven't followed Jesus with your life, turn to him. Follow Jesus. He is the savior of our souls. He's the one who loves us beyond all we can imagine. So let us worship God now. Let us worship the one who, who we can fear because he's so great, but we can fear in a way that we can trust him because he is the perfect savior found in Jesus Christ. Pray with me and we'll sing. Lord, thank you for your word um, that doesn't just give us a way to live doesn't just show like this is how you do it. it 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 considers the complexities of this world and the problems but thank you also Lord, that you care about us you care about our character and and that you you put us through things to to work on us to help us to grow and help us to grow the people that are around us god and Lord, even more, we thank you that it isn't up to us in any way that Jesus Christ has paid the punishment for all sin, our real problem. We thank you that Jesus has come down and that he ever lives to inter- intercede for us. We honor you this morning. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.